This is lecture seven of our series on the confession of faith. We use a faith Baptist church. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, take a look at lecture number seven, sections 13, 14, and 15. Father, we ask for your help and guidance, Lord. Uh, help me to know uh, how to say these things in the most profitable way. In Christ's holy and precious name, I ask it. Amen. Now, in this section, uh, 13, 14, and 15, uh, section 13 is about repentance and faith. Now, repentance and faith have already been mentioned uh, in the confession already, but uh, they get their own article because of the importance of these ideas of repentance and faith. There's been a lot of controversy in Christianity and evangelical Christianity uh, in the last 50 years or so over, this, uh, over these two things, repentance and faith. Kind of the two extremes uh, that have come to light in the last 40 years have been the differences between uh, John MacArthur uh, and his and Lordship Salvation and then basically everybody else. <laughs> and then, uh, so, repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is something that is, uh, uh, are two sides of the same coin. Our confession says that we believe that repentance and faith are solemn oblig- obligations or requirements and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the quickening Spirit of God, thereby being deeply convicted of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy, at the same time, hardly receiving the Lord Jesus Christ and openly confessing Him as our only and all-sufficient Savior. The main point of our confession here is to say that these two things are their obligations they are mandatory things you can't have salvation without repentance and faith and the confession tells us that these things are inseparable graces they 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 go together a repenting person is also a believing person there are two kinds of repentance that we are familiar with one is a moral repentance where a person is uh, sorry for something that they have done because of the consequences they are suffering. And sometimes people, uh, they're, may, they're trying to make something right. They're, they're, they're sorrowful, they're remorseful, they're repentant for, their, for something they have done. But then they are really, they're really pushed to a greater depth of sorrow for their wrongdoing because of the consequences. Uh, I would think that uh, people who are uh, in prison, who are suffering deprivation of their rights and privileges of citizenship are really in a great greater level of sorrow for the things they have done uh, in comparison to a person who has done the same thing but has never been caught. So, moral repentance. But then there is a thing called evangelical repentance. And this is a repentance unto life. It's the kind of repentance that's described in Acts chapter 17 where the Lord, or the Apostle Paul says, that to the Athenians, to the men on Mars Hill, he declares to them that they need repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Acts chapter 20, verse 21, Paul says this to the elders of Ephesus. He says, I've been testifying to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Repentance is a change of mind. It's a change of mind. It's a change of mind about really almost everything, but primarily it's a change of mind about God, about you and God. We have to have the right perspective of God. We have to have the right understanding of God. Dare we say the right appreciation of God. We have to see God as worthy of our attention, allegiance, and praise, and the God who is rightfully enthroned as the judge of all things. Repentance means we no longer look to God as the cruel and vicious taskmaster creator God. But repentance will return to God and see that he is the righteous judge. And because he is good, he has the right to judge us for our sins. And we see ourselves in the light of his holiness. We, you may think of it like we come be, we, uh, repentance is us coming before him and being given the right perspective of ourselves, seeing ourselves as we really are. That's what it says in James, if you behold yourself in the the law of liberty, in the law of God, you see yourself for what you really are. 
And once we have this repentance that's come to us, then we are able to flee to Christ. Repentance causes us to understand our situation and then to see that our only Savior, our only way of escape, is through is Jesus Christ. And this confession kind of goes through and tells us, describes some of the emotional feelings or understandings we have. We're deeply convicted of our guilt. And that's just simply a way of saying it's something more than superficial. It's deeper. It's something very deep. It's not a, it's not a, uh, an intellectual thing, although it is intellectual. It's something deep and meaningful to us. It's like if you ever go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., we all oppose the Holocaust. And you've probably seen little clips and films like I have down through the years. Or maybe you've seen that film, uh, Schindler's List, made back in the 90s. Uh, maybe the, Yeah, I guess it would be the 90s. And those, those images and all those things, they really affect you in a deep way. But we went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., when you walk through there and you see the room of shoes and, and you see the names, you see the cars and just, just it and the pictures and the stories, it just it just affects you in a way so deeply that you are that you say, Okay, we're n I never want to see this again. I never want to see I never want to visit there again. <laughs> but more importantly, I never want to I never want to see that happen in the world again. It affects you in a very deep and profound way. But repentance is that kind of thing. It convinces you of your guilt, of your danger and your helplessness, your inability to save yourself, and causes you to look to Christ, and that's faith. You put your faith in Jesus Christ. The only way you can be delivered from your sinfulness, the only way you can be saved from your unrighteousness is to put your faith in Jesus Christ, to call upon Him, to trust in Him as your only hope as your Savior. Now, Scripture gives us some pictures of what this kind of situation looks like. I'm going to read now to you from Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. <clears throat> Jesus gives us this parable of these two men who go up to the temple to pray. <coughs> Luke 18, verse 9. And this parable... He told, he told also this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men who are extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector... Standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So here is the picture. One man who is self-righteous, who looks at everyone else and measures his own standing with God by his, perspe his perception of other, other people. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> he looks at himself and says, I'm really good. He looks over to this other guy and says, that guy is really bad. And God, I'm glad that I'm better than he is. That's the opposite. And what Jesus says is that the man who will not even look up to heaven is the man who will go down to his house justified or saved because that man has come to know something about God and something about himself that the that the uh, the other guy does not the Pharisee does not you see the only thing that can cause you the only thing that can cause you to truly understand who you are and who God is is the Holy Spirit and this conf our confession says these things that repentance and faith are inseparable graces. Those are, that word grace means gift, are inseparable gifts that are wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can convince a man or a woman that, that they are really as bad as God says they are. Because we deny that. 
We do not want to accept that we are as bad as alleged. We're always better. When we tell a story to our friends, and even if we are the bad guy in the story, we we always, or we always, we tend to shape the narrative in a way that makes us less vile. Less vile. I don't know if you saw that. Uh, I'm not going to talk about that. Anyway, repentance and faith. These things are caused by the Holy Spirit. And when a person is quickened by the Holy Spirit, when a person is regenerated by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is saving them. And the sign that He is saving them is they are repenting of their sins and putting their faith in God. And this repentance of sins is not a one-time thing. It's ongoing. Repenting, repenting, repenting of their sins. And the second thing is is they put their faith in Jesus. And it's not just a one-time thing. It's an ongoing believing, believing, believing. That person who has been born again by the Spirit of God never stops repenting of their sins, and they never stop believing in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That great text here is listed in our proof text, Romans chapter 10, verse 13. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Also, it gives us Psalms 51, 1 through 4, and also Psalms 51, 7, which are uh, from David's penitential psalm where he has been uh, called on the carpet about his sinfulness and he is acknowledging that he has sinned before God against you and you only have I sinned, David says. He is, that's evangelical, that's a deep repentance caused by the Holy Spirit. Now, section 14 of our confession is about the church. <clears throat> now, I have here in my hand, if, if you didn't get one of these, just send me an email or a text message or a Facebook message and I'll get one of these uh, to you. I can give it to you at church on Sunday. It's a paper that has uh, two definitions of the church. Now, uh, this first one is from Theopedia.com. Theopedia.com. It's sort of, sort of like a, uh, a Wikipedia type kind of thing for theology. They don't really take a lot of positions. What they do is they've listed, they've listed, they list a lot of views, most, mostly conservative Bible-believing views. But you can go there and type in your question in the search bar and you find a lot of helpful stuff. The only uh, problem I've ever had with that particular website is that sometimes the links don't always work because uh, it's links to sermons or links to articles because sometimes people's blogs or sermon uh, sermon hosting sites and they update they take away old content and put new content sometimes the links don't work overall I find it very helpful and that's the first section and what this guy is saying in this article about the church is that the use of the term church that there are various problems that have arisen because of the the multiple usages of the term church or in the case of the New Testament uh, the the Greek word ecclesia now, ecclesia is most often found in the New Testament in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Jesus, our Lord, only uses it just a few times. But mostly Paul is uh, writing to the church. Or to the church in the big sense as universal church, or in the local sense as local churches. Millard Erickson says that the uh, this term usually references a group of believers in a specific city. Therefore, we find Paul's letters addressed to churches in certain areas. The church of Corinth, Thessalonica, Galatia, uh, that, that kind of thing. So it's a, a local, visible, knowable, accessible, <laughs> joinable group of people. The letters go to them. And you say, well, if those letters are to them, how do we know they're to us? Because they're to, these letters are to all Christian churches. All Christian churches. They've been preserved for us in Scripture. And uh, it's something to think about. If it's a problem in the churches Paul is writing to, it's probably going to be a problem that in our churches too, problems that we're going to have to address as well in our life with Christ. So there's a picture of the church, uh, the usage of the word church that tells us it is uh, to visible local churches. Then there's also the New, Text- New Testament picture of the church, which is universal. That's the, or the body of Christ. And there are times when the term is used to speak of the entire church, the entire church. Now, the church 
universal is the whole body of those who through Christ's death have been savingly reconciled to God and they receive new life. So everybody who is born again is a part of the body of Christ. And we could sometimes people say that's the the universal or the mystical body of Christ. And that's just a way to say of saying that the universal church now is not tangible. It's not tangible. It's something that you can't really lay hands on. Uh, part of the universal church is in heaven now with Christ. Their spirit, their souls and spirits are there in heaven with Christ and their bodies are here on the earth. And then there are the rest of the people who are alive, who are part of the universal church. Our souls and spirits are here, and our bodies are also here. But we will pass through the veil into Christ's presence. Then one day when the Lord Jesus returns from heaven and gathers up all his people from the base of the earth, he will take the living who are in Christ, and then the dead who are in Christ will all rise together to meet the Lord in the air. And then we'll all be assembled you know, in one place, in one in one one area for all time. And the B.H. Carroll called that the glory church, the church in glory. Now, the other view of the church that I have on this uh, handout is the cat, this the Roman Catholic view. And this is from a website called simplycatholic.com. Finding out what the Catholic Church believes about things can sometimes be a little bit difficult. It's very the it's a very complex structure. Uh, of churches in their view, and I have their catechism in my office, and, and there's a there's a lot of online resources. And the, and the Catholics they don't they don't hide what they believe about most things. I mean, it's out there. They're they're pretty transparent about most things. Well, so far as I've as I've been able, been able to understand, they're transparent about everything. Um, <clears throat> now, Catholics and Protestants we agree on a lot of things. We agree on a lot of things, but there are some things we don't agree with the Catholic Church on. One is going to be the gospel, and the second is we don't agree with the Catholic Church about ecclesiology. Now, ecclesiology begins with a, with a basic question. Did Jesus intend to found a church? The New Testament, as well as church history, makes this abundantly clear that he did, and it's accepted by both Protestants and Catholics that Jesus founded a church. Now, now, Protestants and Catholics disagree on what the visible church looks like. The visible church So where Catholics and Protestants disagree is over what the visible church looks like. Now, the, for Catholics, there are essentially two aspects that are necessary for a church to be a church. First, it must have a hierarchical structure centered upon the bishops and the pope. If there's no pope, there's no bishops, and there's no church. And it must have the sacraments. These are the two essential features that Catholicism look to. Now, we, as, as Protestants, in a church like ours, a Christian church, we only have two sacraments or two ordinances, and that's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then in the Catholic Church, I think they have seven, seven sacraments. We don't have, we may have bishops, a.k.a. pastors, in each individual church. Uh, of course, some Protestants, some Protestant uh, church groups, they do have the hierarchical structure of a regional bishop who's over, uh, who's over, <clears throat> you know, different areas. The Presbyterian Church has presbyteries of, of certain regions. And then there's a session. There's kind of different layers to that. And in the uh, uh, in Baptist churches, Baptistic churches, um, mostly, it's mostly Baptist churches, I would think, because I think even some of the charismatic churches have regional bishops who kind of oversee uh, a lot of churches. Uh we just we have bishop we have a bishop so here at faith I'm the bishop I'm the pastor of the church the overseer of this church but I'm not the overseer of a different church because a local church the visible church uh, has no oversight or control over another church at all at all okay so but so you can see the difference between the Catholic Church uh, view and the Protestant Church view 
So the hierarchical, the hierarchical structure is vital to the church because without the bishops, there is no church. There is no church in Catholicism. So that's why those issues are very, very important to in Roman Catholic tradition. Uh, the, uh, I'm not even certain that... Well, I'm not going to say it because it's just a, an inference on my part about it. Now, we have to recognize... Now, our confession says that there... Uh, it says we believe that a church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers. Now, in, our, in this uh, edition of our confession, I've inserted the word visible. I've inserted the word visible because uh, the New Hampshire Confession of 1833, which is our confession is derived from, it says we believe that a gospel, that a, we believe that a, when it's talking about a gospel church or a gospel order church, we believe that a visible church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers. Now, it says the visible church, which is a nice way of, of, of the writer saying, not saying there is no universal church, which was an issue at hand in that time, uh, which was out there. It was a, a hotly debated topic at the time. Uh, it was a, a compromising way to say the invisible church looks like this. The invisible church, of course, is made of all, all the same. The uh, current GARBC Confession of Faith from their website, uh, which of which we are a part, says that a local church is an organized congregation of immersed believers. Our confession says uh, a church of Christ is a congregation of baptized believers. So, I put the word visible. I add the word visible because the visible church does look a certain way. The visible church has a certain character about it. Our confession says that these baptized believers, they are associated by a covenant of faith and fellowship of the gospel. So there is a, an agreement that's made. It's a mutual agreement. It's uh, every person who joins this church, they do so because they want to, but then just because they want to doesn't mean they can. We talk to these uh, prospective members. We want to know basically three things. We want to know if they're saved, if they've been baptized, and, you know, if they're going to, if they really want to be a part of the church, of this church. And if they want to be a part of the church, it means they adopt Means they're coming in and going to be a part of us with all of our warts and, and problems, you know. Just like when you uh, when you marry when you marry a girl or marry a guy, you are not just marrying that person; you are also marrying their entire family. <laughs> You're going to get a mother-in-law, a brother-in-law, sister-in-law, father-in-law, whole nine yards, grandpas-in-law, <clears throat> all those things. And so, um, but it's agreement. So that the. The person says, I want to join, and the church has a vote. We say, okay, we're going to accept you as members. And the, the procedures for joining a church, um, and church the ch a church membership role, all those kind of things, um, to me, I think, I think it's, it's plain in Scripture, some of these things. Acts chapter 1, they had a list of 120 names. And then on Pentecost, they added to that existing membership 3,000 more members. After they were baptized, and uh, that's, that's the way I take those passages, and I think that's, uh, I think that's a reasonable way to do it. But every church has to have their own process for adding new members and also for dismissing members. Um, most of the time, uh, Baptist churches don't permit you to be a member of more than one church at a time. Now that being said, uh, it's a historical fact in in America that uh, pastors in olden times, let's say in the 17th, uh, 17 and 1800s, uh, a pastor, if he was a full-time minister, could be the pastor of three to four churches at the same time. Now, the reason he was able to do that is because the churches did not meet every week. Sometimes some churches would meet every other week, every third week, every fourth week, uh, maybe if it was a city church uh, or a town church where there was a, a larger congregation and the people could uh, pay the pastor a living and the, the work weeks were different. And uh, more than some of the churches way out in the rural areas were very, very small. You know, just a dozen or so people. And uh, so they would have their uh, worship services, you know, every every fourth or fifth Sunday. 
and because uh, they travel by horse and that kind of thing. So those pastors were also members of those particular churches watching over them. So it's it's not uncommon in the past that it, it's not something that's foreign to our history. But it, right now, a lot of times the church church rules will say you can't be the member of more than one church at a time. But that but every church has to decide how they're going to receive and dismiss members. And it's kind of all based on 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, verse number 41, which I'll read to you, 1 Corinthians uh, 14. Listen to the reading uh, from God's Word here. It says, this is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 40. Uh, All things should be done decently and in order. So in, in a church, and the only handbook we have, the only church handbook we have in Scripture that tells us about uh, some of the uh, some of the duties of of the church it is in First Corinthians eleven through fourteen, which kind of gives us uh, our principles for practice. And uh, verse forty tells us we should do things in an orderly fashion. And so, what most churches do is they sit down and they decide, you know, what's an orderly way to receive and dismiss members. How are we going to function? And they write out. You know, a list of rules. My friend who pastored in England for a long time, his church, they called them the church rules. And uh, I think that's uh, I think that's great. I like calling them the church rules, and I refer to the church bylaws and constitution as the rules because it means that it's the rules. You have to go by the rules, just like you play if you play basketball or football or baseball or soccer. You have to go by the rules. Now, it doesn't mean the rules are always perfect or are not above being changed. They can be changed. But the rules should be changed with caution. And you want to kind of maintain that decorum of order uh, in the church. Now, when you talk about the visible church, there are certain things that the visible church has to do. Has to do. Uh, it says that we are to observe the ordinances of Christ. And that's the two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is to be under the law of Christ. Now, the law of Christ is the Word of God. And it's not necessarily, to be think about when we say Word of God, the, the, the local church, we are not governed by, exclusively by the Old Testament. We take a lot of uh, Romans 14, Romans 15 says, the things which are written before time are written for our learning, for our exhortation that we might have hope. So we, we get principles from the Old Testament. There are, uh, a lot, there's a lot of wonderful things in the Old Testament, but primarily the, the 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 Church of the New Covenant, the Christian Church, we are governed by the New Testament, the New Testament by the Word of God, as with Christ as our head. In this church, there are only two officers: there's pastors, uh, pastor and deacons or elders. Some churches have a plurality of elders, uh, and then they have deacons. Not every church has that. Uh, I would say that, as I understand it, in the 20th century, most Baptist churches have just a pastor uh, and deacons. In times past, uh, churches may have had, had elders. It's kind of it's kind of a new uh, a new thing in the last uh, 50 years with the resurgence of Reformed theology and a lot of Baptists kind of recovering their roots uh, in. In the doctrines of grace and the old confessions, they've gone back to uh, an elder style of government, and uh, so those things, those things are out there, different different views. But these are the only two offices. Now, basically, that's not anything new. What I just said to you, but what it is is it's distinguishing the difference between us and Catholics, between us and other Protestant churches. So all our all our leadership is local, right here you know, within this particular fellowship. Now, it says the true mission of the church is found in the great commission. Our true mission is to publish the good news, is to make the gospel known. This is Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. It's Acts chapter 1, verse number 8. But you shall be witnesses unto me after you've received the Holy Spirit, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. Our primary our primary mission is to just to preach the gospel. Second, baptize those who believe that gospel. Thirdly, to teach 
the scriptures to those baptized people, to those disciples. We're making disciples here in the local church. Now, uh, scriptures, our confession says we do not believe in the, in the reversal of this order. What that means is we do not believe in baptizing someone before they believe. We don't believe in putting somebody into the church until they've been baptized. So that's the order. Saved, baptized, joined to the church. And if you if a person makes application to join this church, these are these are these are the questions that we ask them. We ask them if they're saved. The second question is when were they baptized? Now there are usually two times in a person's life where they're baptized. The first time, uh, a lot of people have been baptized as babies. Now, and then got saved later. Got saved later. Now that's that's a reversal of the order. So if you were raised in the Christian Reformed Church, the Methodist Church, the Presbyterian Church, the Lutheran Church, the Catholic Church, uh, any church uh, that baptizes babies, infants, infant baptism, um, that was a baptism before salvation. Before salvation. And if you want to join this particular church, and you say, well, I was baptized before I was saved, then we would say, well, then we're going to ask you to be rebapt to be. We're going to ask you not to be rebaptized, but to be baptized scripturally for the first time as a believer. This is what you see. In the new, this is the New Testament pattern. There's a lot of arguments and reasons why Christian churches uh, practice pedo baptism, baptizing their babies, and it's uh, it's a very interesting conversation. But that's not something that this particular church believes. So. If a person comes and they want to be a part of the church, they have to have believer's baptism. And that's the way it is uh, in Scripture, and that's the way our rules reflect. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, this local church uh, has the right of self-government. So nobody outside of this particular church tells us what to do. Although we are affiliated, we are associated with the General Association of Regular Baptist Churches, the Michigan GARBC, and then the broader GARBC. We are part of that association, but they have no control over us. Uh, they don't own our property is held in trust by us. They don't own a bit of it. We don't have to send them a report. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to answer to them in any way other than uh, because we are a member of that group, we can only maintain our membership or our association with that fellowship of churches if if we maintain the same doctrinal positions. Now, there are some doctrinal positions uh, that we could take that would uh, disqualify us for membership in the Association of Regular Baptists. And, that, and that's basically true. There are a lot of Baptist associations uh, in America. There are the, there's a Northern Baptist Association. General Baptist Association, and there's a then there's then there, there's the General Baptist, and there's the the GARBC, General Association of Regular Baptist, and then you have uh, the Southern Baptist, and then you have the American Baptist Association, then you have the Baptist Missionary uh, Association of America, uh, you have uh, probably like the IFCA, Independent Fundamental Churches of America. There's lots of a, there's lots of different associations. And uh, a lot of times those associations are regional. So like we're, we're part of the Michigan GARBC. Uh, in Oklahoma, where we came from, uh, our church was an independent Baptist church. It wasn't affiliated with anybody, anywhere, at any time, except, well, with nobody. But it, we were in a region where almost every church around us was a Southern Baptist church, and those churches were a part of the Comanche Cotton Association. So there's a section of counties there in Oklahoma, and all of those churches in those counties were part of that local association, regional association. They would meet together once a year or quarterly for associational meetings. <clears throat> and then every year, you have the Baptist General Convention of Oklahoma, where all the Southern Baptists would get together. And then you have the Southern Baptist, and that, they were all part of the bigger Southern Baptist Convention, which is a national affiliation of churches. But they're Baptists just like we are. None of those, uh, none of those 
conventions or associations control the local church. Now, without a doubt, they do exert some influence on churches. Like the GRBC kind of influences us in some ways. They influence us by asking us to adhere to a certain doctrinal standard. Uh, they recommend different things to us, different uh, colleges, uh, missionaries, mission boards. The real reason for uh, cooperation with other churches of like faith and practice is for to accomplish things that we can't accomplish. So, for instance, uh, we could we could probably raise the money to send uh, a family from our church to the mission field and fund them 100%. We, we probably could. Um, and if, if we needed to, I think we, 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 I think this church would do it. We would rise to the, rise to the challenge of giving to send one of our folks. Now, but that's just one that we could do. One that we could do. Not the Lord... And every church is different. There are some churches who send a lot of missionaries and they su- support them 100%. Uh, but most of the time in Baptist churches, the mission, the missions, the missionary work, uh, global world evangelism is done by associations where churches work together to push out the gospel to other places. So they do it through mission boards and clearing houses and they introduce missionaries to each other and then... It, we also like. I think we support uh, eight or nine missionaries here, and we we give them a we support them. We give them a portion. I think we probably give most of them between uh, twelve hundred and twenty four hundred dollars a year, and we send it to them either once a year or a couple times a year, and then that money goes into an account that all the churches send their money to, and then that money is doled out to them uh, as they need it. <clears throat> so that's working together, which brings us to this. Uh, this section here that true churches cooperate with each other in contending for the faith. Now, um, the old New Hampshire Confession did say anything about true churches. Uh, the the GRBC, the latest edition says the same thing. True churches cooperate with each other. Now, when you have the the term true church, that that means there has to be a false church. There, if there are true churches, then there are false churches. If there are no false churches, then everything's a true church. So what does it mean when it says true church? And there are a few, few different ways to say that. One way you could say it is that an individual, uh, is that a church is either in gospel order or not. A second way to say it is that a church is scriptural or not, or, un, or it's unscriptural. Now, if we compare... Uh, our church to the Roman Catholic Church, we say, well, it's not a true church. And the reason we say it's not a true church is because of, of what they believe about the gospel and the ordinances and and how they preach the word and everything about the word of God. And just just a lot there's a lot of issues that come up. Uh, Martin Luther in the Reformation period, when he was you know protesting the Roman Catholic Church, he came up with this little slogan and it was kind of a you recognize a true church a true church is one where the word is rightly preached and the ordinances are rightly observed so the word is where a true church is where the word is rightly preached and the ordinances rightly practiced and so rightly preached means the right gospel the right gospel justification by faith alone salvation by grace through faith Ephesians 2 8 9 that, that kind of thing and then where the ordinances are rightly practiced. And so, now, Luther's rule of thumb is a good rule of thumb, in my opinion. It's a great rule of thumb. But I would say that Martin Luther, and a lot of people say this, I think the majority of evangelical Christians might say that Martin Luther was right in his rule, <laughs> but wrong in obeying it. He didn't follow it. Because how the ordinances... You know, are rightly the sacraments are rightly practiced. So in in the Lutheran tradition, they still are baptizing babies, and they still see the that there's some kind of spiritual nourishment in communion. In my opinion, it's uh, it's very hard to prove from Scripture that baptizing children, baptizing babies, precognizant babies 
is scriptural. You, I just, I've listened to the arguments on all that, and I just, I just don't, I can't see it. I was talking with a Presbyterian friend of mine. Uh, one time we were eating, we were eating in a, a Greek restaurant in Oklahoma, and um, he was bewailing the fact that he had people who were visiting his church, uh, and they were, he would explain to them about infant baptism. And they were just like, you know, we just we just don't get it. We just don't agree with that. And so they would go down the road and join a Baptist church most of the time. Most of the churches in our town were Baptist churches. I told him, I said, you know, I said, you know why that is? You know why it's so hard to convince people of that? And he said, why? I said, I'm going to tell you the secret to convincing them. He said, okay, tell me what it is. I said, well, the reason why nobody wants to believe that is because it's not in the Bible. <laughs> I had a big laugh and... He had a big grimace because there's no text. There's no single text in Scripture. There's no practice in Scripture you can point to to say that this is uh, why we baptize babies. Now, Presbyterians and uh, Methodists and different people, they have, they, have, they, have some, they have arguments that they use for, to support that. The only thing is it's an argument from silence. Argument from silence. There's a famous debate with uh, R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur. They're debating baptism. MacArthur roots his argument in Scripture, and then uh, Sproul comes back and says, uh, John is right. However, there's nothing in Scripture that forbids us from baptizing children. And that's his statement. There's nothing, that's true. There's no prohibition. But there is not uh, a command to baptize children either. When you follow the New Testament, when you're reading the Bible, for yourself, you what you'll come to, if you draw a question mark over baptizing babies, should I baptize babies? Yes or no, and you read through the New Testament, what you come up with is circling the answer no. You don't circle yes, you circle no. And that is sort of in the, uh, in the 17th century in England and on the European continent is as the Bible becomes more accessible to people, to lay people, as they're reading the New Testament, they're seeing that this important thing that everybody does, baptizing their babies, is not in the New Testament, and it causes kind of a revolution, a theological, an ecclesiological revolution where people stop baptizing their babies, and, uh, and they're persecuted for it. That's a, and that's a, that's a reality. Christians were persecuted by other Christians because they did not baptize their babies. They refused to baptize their children. And the reason they refused to do it was because it could not be proven to them from Scripture. From Scripture. And so a true church is one that follows the New Testament. A false church is one that does not follow the New Testament. Now, when we talk about true and false churches... So if we talked about uh, some of the churches in our area that are pedo-baptists that baptize babies, if we say they're a false church, we're not saying that they have a false soteriology. We're saying they have a false ecclesiology. So my friend who I was speaking with, he's a Presbyterian. He believes in justification by faith. And when he's preaching the gospel, you think you're hearing Terry Basham preaching the gospel. Now our and vice versa. But the difference that we have is over what the visible church looks like. He and I are in agreement on the gospel. We're in agreement on the universal church. But what a visible church looks like is different. Now he'll say, we believe, and they'll say, we believe that the visible church is composed of baptized believers. Of course, that's that smells bad because babies don't believe. The family believes on behalf of the child or you know, something something like that. So there's a proper church order and there is a wrong church order. And uh, churches like ours, Baptist churches, Bible churches, um, they're all, we're all trying to follow the scriptures, to follow the scriptures. And you can, and this, and so uh, churches, churches that agree on the right ecclesiology should, should work together. That's what our confession is saying. Now, then the last line here of most of particular interest to us probably would be this idea that the will of the church 
uh, is final, is final on all matters. Let's see, every church is the sole and only judge of the measure and method of its cooperation on all matters of membership, of polity, of government, of discipline, of benevolence. The will of the local church is final. Now, so when a local church decides to do, there's no one that can come around and say that's wrong. That was the wrong choice. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, local churches don't make mistakes <laughs> because local churches do make mistakes. A church can get it wrong, but um, the only way uh, a church can be corrected is by the Scripture through the Holy Spirit. No outside ecclesiastical authority can come and say, can override us. So just, um, I'm not going to talk about that. So that's the section on the church. Now, um, now when you talk, let's go back and talk about the visible church for a second. So when you talk about a visible church, you have to have this idea of formal, formal church membership. Formal church membership. And this is something that's worth thinking about. Uh, we say that formal church membership, I say formal church membership is important because we need to know who the local church is exactly, specifically, because the local church has responsibilities. The congregation has responsibilities. They have, do, they have a duty to uphold. So every member of Faith Baptist Church is responsible for being sure this church teaches the right doctrine. Every member in this church is responsible for this church's discipline, for being sure that uh, we're not tolerating wanton sin in the church. So, in my, in my reason for saying that is when you turn, if you take a, a book like 1 Corinthians, and you read... Um, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul writes to a specific group of people. Now these are people that uh, Paul has known. He has known them. He's baptized some of these people. And they've been formed into a local church. And when he writes to this church, he implores them. He implores them, not the pastors, not the deacons, but he implores the church to take certain actions. And he says, this is what the church needs to do. Now, Paul, he exerts an apostolic authority by telling them what they, what they should do. He says this. This is because he's the apostle has a special function in that time. But he writes to the church. He's asking the church to do their duty. First Corinthians chapter six. He says, "Don't you know?" Verse nineteen. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom ye have from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul just goes through. For he just he, really the church had gotten. He's gotten pretty woolly, and he's giving him a haircut, man. He's he's uh, <laughs> he's shearing the sheep, you might say, and straightening them out because they've gone or, gone awry. And he tells them they have a duty. All right, you see, and then all the almost all of Paul's letters are written to uh, a local church, church of Colossi, Colossi, Thessalonica, etc. Now, if you go down to uh, Revelation. Chapter 1, you have seven letters written to seven local churches in Asia Minor. Seven specific groups of people. And here, he tells these churches they need to mend their ways. Mend their ways. Now, an argument can be made and is made that these seven letters are written to the pastors of these seven churches because it says... Revelation 2, 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. And this word angel means messenger. And um, and I don't I don't know what to make of that myself. I, I've gone back and forth. Is it the pastor? Is the pastor the messenger to the church? Or is this some kind of uh, uh, 
What, what is, is there an angel every church has? I don't know. I don't think there's a, a mystical angel. So maybe it is the pastor. But uh, the whole sense, though, is these are written to local churches. That's what I'm using them as to prove my case. Now, in 1 Corinthians, the apostle tells the church at Corinth that they have to take some action. Listen to the reading. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Chapter 5. Verse 12. For what have I to do with, with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those from the outside. Purge the evil person from among you. And so Paul says, there is a person in the church who's bad, and this is kind of the whole reason for this letter. It's the, basically the straw that broke the camel's back. This guy is committing a very wicked sin. He's committing incest with his father's wife. And so Paul writes this letter and says, cast this guy out of the fellowship. Don't have communion with him. Don't eat with him. He needs to feel the shame of being excommunicated, of set outside the church, of being purged, set away, put away from you. Now, the only way that can happen is, this is an argument from, this is a, uh, an inference, I guess you might say. The only way this can happen is if the person is a part of a known, a recognized group of people. So there's a particular church of which this guy's a member. And this particular church has an obligation to him to speak to him, to command him not to sin. And if he won't, he won't stop his sinning ways, to put him out of the fellowship, to withhold from him the fellowship of the church. Now, um, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, uh, uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure the full extent of that. I would think uh, on the surface, it looks like the guy is not allowed to take communion. And I would say probably he's not allowed to come to church either. That's just uh, you know, no, no, no company with you. So I guess that, that's, that's the, that seems mean and harsh and it's a difficult, uh, you know, we're, we're so, we're, we're in a culture now where we're, we got to be nice about everything, you know, you don't want to be ugly, you want to be unkind. Um, and, and nobody likes church discipline. Nobody likes to do it because it, it can, it can be abused and, uh, but you know, every, every good thing can be abused. Every good thing could be abused. All of you. I would think probably your mom or your dad smacked you on the mouth or uh, when you run your mouth or smacked you on the backside. And, and uh, then some people, though, and, you, and you're not mad about it. You're not bad about it. But maybe some of you had a father, friend, or, you know, somebody who was abused, was abused, was beaten mercilessly, beaten with cruel, cruel intentions by someone. And that's... So, you know, good things can be abused. And uh, just like in marriage, you know, there's a headship in the home and uh, the headship of a husband can be abused and the father and those kind of things. So it's uh, discipline is something that should be entered into with caution and concern. Matthew 18 talks about it. Uh, Paul talks about it in his letters uh, to the Corinthians. And uh, it's not the main thing that churches do, but it is a thing that churches have to do. Churches have a responsibility. Then you have all the the one another passages in the New Testament where the church is supposed to do this for other people. Now, every local church is created by the Holy Spirit. So God brings people into the church. He brings in the church whom he wants in the church. And then that local church uh, from that person will benefit, will benefit from their gifts <laughs> And also benefit from their imperfections, <laughs> from their failings, because we learn to get along with people. We're growing in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, and we 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 people learn how to 
you know, we're just, uh, it's, it's a family and we get them with all their warts and everything else. So that's the, the local church, the local church. And then uh, we have baptism and the Lord's Supper. Christian baptism is by immersion in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this shows forth in a beautiful emblem, our faith in the crucified, buried, and risen Savior with its effect in our death to sin and resurrection to new life. Then in the scriptural order, baptism precedes the privileges of church membership is a public recognition of the, of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So when a person is baptized, they're putting on the jersey, putting on the, the team hat that says, I'm a part, I belong to Christ. I belong to Christ. And once a person has been baptized into the death of Christ, then, then, uh, they are eligible to be a member of a local church. Now, uh, the door to the local church is mutual consent. Mutual consent. This is an important thing to understand. If a person is saved and baptized and they want to join a church, they have to join voluntarily. So they, they come and they say, I would like to join this church. And so then you take that person and you present them to the church and say, okay, Bob wants to join the church. And so Bob has said he's saved, he's baptized, and he wants to join. And so the congregation should have a little time to talk to Bob and see, you know, what what Bob's about. Then the congregation votes. And they vote with the right hand of fellowship. You know, they're going to they're going to bring him into the fellowship. And that's the door to the church. You can't be a member of the church of this fellowship without mutual consent. The person, the applicant consents to join the church consents to receive, and you bring them together, then you have, they become a part of the church. Now, the way that's done is usually expressed in a vote. The church votes on a person, and they vote that person into membership, which is an office, the office of church member. And then once you're a member of the church, you have duties and privileges, duties and privileges. And those are normally expressed in the church covenant, in the church covenant. Then you have the Lord's Supper. Now, the Lord's Supper is something that we do on the first Sunday of every month here. This reminds us that we all are saved by, by and through the blood and death of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ died for our sins and uh, saved us. Now, there, I think our confession here probably is is uh, is stating close communion that we believe that people should be saved and baptized and part of a church before they take communion. Uh, here, at the, here at our church, we practice open communion, so everybody who is a believer can come. There are three views of communion. Open communion, close communion, C-O-L-S-E, and closed communion. Open communion means everybody who is uh, present, who wants to take communion with us, eat and drink the Lord's body, may. Uh, the second view is close communion, and uh, this is a common thing in Protestant churches, is they fence the table. The pastor may say, only those persons who are saved and baptized should take the Lord's table. And they kind of give a warning or a caution. And uh, uh, maybe they would even prohibit somebody from taking the Lord's table. So, you know, like, you know, if you're here today visiting and we don't know you, we don't want you to take the Lord's table. That's close. Then you have closed communion. Closed communion... Is uh, means that only the members of that local church can eat and drink together. And in a church that practices closed communion, uh, sometimes they'll have communion always on a Sunday night when there are fewer non-members around. Or they'll do it uh, at any time, but they'll usually uh, have a pause at the end and ask, so an announcement will be made, you know, this is only for the members of our church, please don't take it. Uh, then... Or they, or, the, or they may say, we're going to reconvene in 10 minutes for a communion service and visitors will leave, that kind of thing. So those are the three views of communion. That's baptism and the Lord's Supper. And um, the supper, we need to be reminded, is a memorial. It's not salvific. Uh, the 1689 London Confession says that we spiritually receive and feed upon Christ crucified, which uh, usually... I am a bare memorialist. 
I, I don't really see the Lord's Supper as a means of grace or as I'm receiving anything from it. Uh, it's a time to remind myself that Jesus died for me. It's personal, it's tangible, uh, but there's been there's various views about the spirituality connected with taking communion. And that covers uh, lecture number seven. If you have any questions about it, I do have this other little handout, uh, which is um, compares the universal church and the visible church. It talks about the different priorities of those things. If you'd like to get a copy of that, shoot me an email, text message, Facebook message, and uh, <clears throat> I'll get to you. I have, I have all these things in my office. And uh, I really appreciate you listening. And may God bless these things to all of our hearts. In Christ's name I pray and ask it. Amen.